Welcome to uxresearch.fm. Today on the show, we have Kate Tausi. Kate is the research operations manager at Atlassian, and she's founder of the popular research ops community. Welcome to the show, Kate. Great. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah. Amazing. Well, we'd love to hear about it. So I'm looking at your LinkedIn, and it's fascinating. There's all sorts of experiences in there. You started in South Africa. You worked at the Vate, for the Vedic Society at one point. We'd love, yeah. to, we'd love to hear briefly about your journey becoming um, into UX research. Yeah, interesting. So uh, it's funny because I've learned to shorten this journey down because it's been very, so many twists and turns to it and I can end up speaking about it for half an hour sure. and then realizing that I don't actually get to speak about the ops. So <laughs> this is the shortened version. Um, in 2004, I, um, I had been a journalist for many years working on mm-hmm. radio production and really loved my work. And I went off, I'd become a yoga teacher in the meantime and went off traveling around India and Mm -hmm. came back nine months later and realized that I couldn't get a job, mostly because in South Africa at the time, and for good reason, um, there was black empowerment and I wasn't the right color at that point to actually get the jobs that were on offer. And um, so I ended up kind of doing a lot of yoga teaching while I was looking for something new. And a friend of mine who was running um, some e-commerce companies from India selling books about Vedic um, knowledge he came around and he said, hey, do you want to do the customer services for my my websites? And I had no idea about the internet. 2004 in South Africa was still, yeah, you were dialing up on ADSL and had the little box that you'd plug into and the whole kind of piece. And right. um, so he kind of came around and showed me what the back of a website looks like. And he was using OS Commerce to manage all these things. Mm-hmm. And um, I started working for him. And very quickly started to see, well, hang on a second. If I were to send out an automated message, I'd get less of these kinds of emails, which would, which would help me. And eventually mm. just said, hey, you know what? Anything under 100 US dollars, just get it done with my developers in Kathmandu. Mm. And so I spent many months really um, customizing OS Commerce to um, the, the needs of the services mm. and kind of worked myself out of a job in a sense because it, I made it so efficient that I didn't have to do a lot to keep the customers happy and make sure they were getting the right messages at the right time. And it's so fascinating because where I am now, I look back and I think, well, that was operations and uh, operations around e-commerce and what I do now is just the same. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. It's really fascinating how so many people who find themselves in UX research segue in from other fields, uh, sort of where they adjacent fields where they sort of managed to experience it in some way. Mm. Um, and let's talk about uh, the research ops community. So you started this in March 2018, and it's exploded in popularity. What, yeah. was, what was the inspiration for starting that? I found that I've been working on operational type things for um, more than half a decade, around about five or six years, since 2013. So it was five years last year. And yeah. um, I was honestly convinced that I was one of the few people in the world who really kind of cared about this stuff and got really excited about research um, labs, about panels, about recruitment, around just solving all these problems around researchers and spending a lot of time hanging out with researchers and getting to know what their main pain points were and the things that were actually affecting them on a personal level. Um, And so I'd made friends with a lot of researchers over the years of consulting, um, sometimes for years in a company and um, or an organization and had coffees with them and just really heard about the things that were not just like, well, this is annoying, but really, like, this is making me feel like I'm really bad at my job when I knew they were an excellent researcher. Mm. And this is actually keeping me up at night. And this is actually having an impact on my happiness. Right. And these things are really making me feel like I'm not meant for this role when, when they were brilliant researchers. 
Um, And so it wasn't just the case of, oh, well, these annoying things that we should get rid of, but much more like there are things that are putting really good researchers off doing the job. Um, And so I had had conversations over the years with people who had read my blog posts, mostly when I was working for Government Digital Service and doing a lot of ops work for them. Mm-hmm. And um, I got in touch and from fairly big organizations, very big organizations. And I just thought, well, I'm not the only person who cares about this. So why don't we get into a room? Um, and I'd even spoken about physically flying to the United States and getting into a room with a lot of these people mm-hmm. to talk about what this thing is. And I just couldn't get it together. And I found I was having these conversations over and over and over again, which is just not efficient and yeah. really not getting anywhere with it. Right. So I started the Slack channel thinking that it would just be me and these people Mm-hmm. And maybe a few other kind of people who popped out of the woodwork in this channel. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't think through, which is the obvious thing now, is that by putting it out there and making a space, all the researchers who were having the pains would come too. Mm-hmm. Because you're essentially saying, hey, here is like a pot of honey. Mm-hmm. Of course, the bees are going to come fly and swarm around it. Right. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of where it started. And it was very much about... I want a space to talk about research ops with people who are doing research ops and experiencing the same kinds of questions and troubles and challenges and opportunities and successes that, that I am too. Right. Did, you, did the term research ops even exist? Were you one of the first people who used that term? It did exist. Um, and okay. in fact, I wasn't the person who made it up. Um, Andrew Meyer, who um, is working at 18F, mm-hmm. um, him and I had had a few conversations, maybe like a couple of conversations over the months about research jobs, like I was having conversations with Etsy and Airbnb and mm-hmm. other government departments and things. And um, so, not that Etsy and Airbnb are government departments, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, he had mentioned this term. I was call- calling it research infrastructure and support um, were the kinds of names that I had had over the years for it. Right. And um, he had said, oh, well, some people are calling it research ops. And right. I know Dave Malouf had used the term research ops. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's a way better term than research (laughs) infrastructure and support. So, no, I wasn't the um, originator of of the term, just kind of took it and popularized it, I guess. Right. And and um, your your role at Atlassian, that looks like that started in August. So I'm I'm sure that was uh, in some way a result of you sort of building this community and uh, Mm -hmm. sort of spearheading this mission. Actually, not at all. Um, I worked with Lisa Reichelt. uh, since 2012, we've done various projects yeah. together, first as a content strategist, which was my mm. previous um, manifestation <laughs> right. uh, with content strategy, um, a skill I use all the time. And um, then she called me into GDS, uh, Government Digital Service, um, in the UK and said, hey, do you want to come work with us and do some content strategy around how researchers think about knowledge and how we you know, put together some kind of database for our knowledge and right. insights? And it was quite funny because I went in and, and in researching researchers and how they think about stuff, A, learns mm. how to do research from some of the best in the industry and um, have, will be forever grateful for that. Yeah. Um, but also, she said in between, well, do you want to, we need a lab and a research lab. Do you want to build this one? And I said, well, I've never really spent time in labs. I don't know. She said, you, you'll figure it out. Go yeah. Do it. And built a lab and it ended up becoming one of the time, one of the best in the country and really kind of shifted the the lab scene and a lot of the suppliers came to me and said i hope you know that you've increased our business so many fold because people are not wanting to build all these labs in a certain way Um, right which was quite funny but um that's really where my work there started and so when lisa came to australia she's australian 
Mm-hmm. I mean, she moved back to Australia and then eventually ended up at Atlassian and saw that they need they needed someone with my kind of skill set and experience. She called me back in, and at about the same time, I had started the ops community. Right. Um, so they were kind of separate um, and ah, yet okay. kind of mutually beneficial. Interesting, and and I guess the the sort of global volunteers, they just along along the way, they sort of start decided to join you on this journey. Yeah, a little bit more structural than that. In that, within two weeks, suddenly we had like 150 to 300 people in this channel, and yeah. a very strong conversation, very specifically around operations, not around research, but around the problems that researchers have and what needs to be operationalized, um, gotcha. and where the opportunities are. And I, I very quickly saw, hey, hang on a second, this isn't just me and like six other people being geeky. This is a whole lot of people really interested, and there is momentum here. And at the time, I said to a group of people who had very closely gathered around there's an opportunity here and it's not us just sitting like birds on a branch chirping at one another endlessly because that's going to make nothing happen but rather really building some kind of movement around this and getting us to actually get the structure i'd been craving right um and i wanted to go flooding like america to create with the six people i thought were interested but we could do this on a much bigger scale and so one of the things that was very um you got some hooters in the background there. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. One of the things I was very um, interested in was what happens tends to happen is that the conversation very becomes very West aligned. It will be the UK or Europe mm. and U- and USA pulling the movement. And I think that the industry is at a place now where there's it's so much more um, diverse than that. And we don't like make an effort to include all the other parts of the world who are doing really interesting things and have a context mm. like India, like Australia, like um, kind of greater parts of Asia and, and, and parts of Europe and Africa. Right. Um, so I very consciously wanted the conversation to be global right from day one and yeah. to spread it as wide as possible. So I put a lot of effort into going out and finding connections in various parts of the world and building those relationships and getting them involved. Um, and that meant that we're gonna very, we, we had said initially that we were going to do five countries and it was going to be Bridget in Australia, Nishita in India, um, and uh, Europe was uh, Germany with, with Chris and Kat and uh, UK and USA. I won't go through all the names. Um, and uh, once we'd kind of published what we were doing as this coverage across the world, feeling like we had kind of, you know, a manageable scattering across the world that was at least more global than it might have been otherwise, the conversation yeah. grew and more people said, hey, we want to be involved. And so we ended up with, I think it was 17 countries and 20. I've started to forget the numbers now, but many countries <laughs> Um, yeah. a lot of the world and um, a, a lot of conversations in making that happen. So it was a very conscious effort to make sure that the impact of this is well distributed and not just sort of concentrated in the usual areas. Yeah, 100%. It was very, very much like something that I went after and made effort in finding people to, to have conversations with and get them involved. Um, Interesting. So that was, it was, your, was this your first time building a global community or have you attempted something like this before? Global, yes, but I'm, I'm, I haven't, funnily enough, when I was in my 20s, I yeah. um, went to the UK from South Africa where I grew up and um, discovered punk rock. Um, in mm-hmm. and I spent a lot of time, I used to skateboard, I spent a lot of time skateboarders mm-hmm. and came back and was like, we need to have this in, in Joburg. And there had been a punk rock scene, but not a big one and it had died down. And I yeah. started a punk rock scene there where I grew the gigs um, and the bands and I played in the band and DJed and, and organized all the gigs and the advertising and everything until they were kind of really big parties of 500 plus and bands getting paid and 
an entire business structure around it and big community of basically like a ton of punk rocking, skateboarding type DIY punks and et cetera, who were following me in the scene. Um, so it's not the first community I've built. The first one right. was the punk rock community. And then this one wasn't very different because I was doing it on a kind of very open community basis of getting everybody involved in the conversation. Um, right. this, this time around, just a completely different topic. <laughs> Interesting. So I guess people can listen to this and trace the origins of research ops to punk rock. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. There's always some anarchy in there when, they, when I'm involved. <laughs> Interesting. And, and so sort of what is what is the vision? Where do you see the community in five years? What, what are people getting? I mean, of course, they're exchanging information with each other. Uh, there's the mural, which I'm looking at right now, which is uh, uh, which is really interesting distillation of uh, all the knowledge. What, what is the vision in five years? What sure. do you see? So one of the updates, um, I don't actually know if you're aware of this, but um, I've stepped away from leading the community. Yes. Um, what I found was um, my like this possibly will come across as arrogant and I really don't mean it this way mm-hmm. um, where my unique position in building out the framework at Atlassian and doing my work with Atlassian which was very well timed because I knew that you know being I'm, I'm sort of sidestepping here and I'll get back to your, your question sure, sure. Um, me being a consultant and I know this even more now that I'm in it I it's even more obvious to me as a consultant, you go in and you'll deliver a lab or you deliver a panel and you might even deliver a few elements if you're around for long enough, but that's rare, mm-hmm. is that you never get to address the full ecosystem. And the most interesting thing about the work I'm doing now is that I'm building out a research recruitment service, but that recruitment service is very, very closely tied to the research library. And mm. that's not obvious until you are there for long enough and building up all of the functions within research ops to understand mm. how they connect. Gotcha. So, um, it was very well timed that the community was around. We did the framework and then I have the opportunity to now actually build out the framework in, in a place. I'm trying right. to remember your original question, which is something I always do. Um, uh, yeah, that's okay. I mean, the, the original question was just about the vision for the community, yes, but it, okay. it sounds like you, you've sort of uh, left it on autopilot. And yeah. So what I found was that I was spending a lot of my time just administrating the community and mm. doing something that, you don't need to be in the position I'm in, like building up a team and actually building up the framework in order right. to do that. You can, you can be a researcher, you can be anyone to administer the community. But what it mm-hmm. meant is that all the time I was putting in, which was like many, many hours a week, could be even two days of my week eventually, yeah. um, in doing that meant that I had no time to mm-hmm. actually write about what I'm learning and share what I'm learning and have conversations like this. And it felt like such a waste to me and even have conversations with other people doing this work to really learn mm-hmm. from them. And I thought it's just such a, like an ill use of my time. Right. So um, I've handed it over to other people who are very enthusiastic and good at doing that work. Um, yeah. And I'm sure it will thrive. What I did find, however, was that because of the way we built the community and that it was focused on getting to know researchers and the whole framework is built off, what are researchers most like pertinent pains at this point, the things that draw them away from doing the actual research. Yeah. So that we can actually build that out. But it means that, most of the people that I know are actually doing research operations are not in that community. If they are there, they're not active in it because the conversation is not relevant to them. It's relevant to researchers who are talking about being more organized in what they do and solving their problems. Yeah. Or even just around research methodology, which is completely not a research mm-hmm. operations manager or lead or coordinator's interest. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And so, yeah, so um, let's talk about the bigger sort of the pain points of research ops at the mm. moment. What is what is the hardest part? 
So there's quite a few things. I think what I'm yep. finding um, sort of on the ground experience is, and this applies to most big organizations, my focus is at the moment because my context is a big global software company. Yeah. And a lot of the people I'm spending time talking to are also in big global software companies, whether that is a, an Airbnb type place or a Microsoft or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our problems are at that level of big global companies. And what we tend to have is... Um, the dream is that you have a core team of researchers and only the people who do, are doing the research are researchers and they do an excellent job of it. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that in most places you have a group of researchers who are, trying, who are doing a lot of research but not nearly enough for the organization. And so you've also got PMs and designers doing research and that can be, the quality can be anything from a really amazing designer who's doing fantastic research to or moderately good research to really, really bad research. Right. And, you know, not because they're wanting to do bad research, of course, everyone wants to do good work, but because they just don't have the skills or it's that old nut that people think that research is easy as just going out and chatting to people or showing them what you've got and listening to what they say. Right. And anyone who does research knows that it knows that that's not the case. It's a highly skilled job and a need to yeah. be practiced in it. Yeah. So the challenge for these for, for us as people building up ops teams in big organizations is that you find that you're you're. You're building out systems that are providing services to sometimes support not good research. Right. And sometimes support really, support really good research. And how do we work with craft, with head of research, with the team to try and upskill the research that's happening? And mm-hmm. how do you start to support like teams who are actually doing good research as opposed to constantly feeding the beast of bad research? Right. And this is a conversation I hear with a lot of people in my kind of position. Um, it's a very tricky, interesting situation. I don't have a solution to yet. And in yep. some ways, it's not my solution to find because I'm not the head of research. I'm working on creating the systems that support research. Right. So sort of that uh, no matter how many researchers you have in a company, PMs and designers will attempt to research themselves at some point or the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, so like pre- sort of preparing a fail safe or preparing for that ev- eventuality, because even some people I'm speaking to at Google, even as many researchers as they're lucky enough to have, yeah. they really spread out thin between teams. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough one. I've not met anyone in a big organization who doesn't have this problem. Yeah. Um, and so like, for instance, you know, practical example, we've got a recruitment, uh, research recruitment service now. That over six months, I've been at Lassing for seven months, and over six months, we've built it up, and it's now a two-person team working on that, which is tiny compared to what we need. Right. Um, you know, one recruiter can look after around 15 requests a month, and I've currently got 45 tickets on desk. Right. And, and another new person coming in to support the one person who's trying to handle that monstrous amount of work. And we know that a lot of the requests coming through are going to be for research that possibly isn't you know, uh, the best planned. And, yeah. and again, this is really not from anyone wanting to do anything. Everybody wants to do great research. And, and this is not unique to Atlassian in any way whatsoever. This is something that a lot of people should be shaking their heads at and saying, yes, we've got a very similar situation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like which of these tickets are for really good research? Which of them are for research that really should be pushed back to educators and advisors that it can be rethought, you know, brought back up to scratch mm. and then recruited for? Um, so, you know, this is just one of the, the it's, a, it's about the challenge and opportunity as, as always is the case. Interesting. So, sorry, just to be clear, so I'm a little confused. So, research recruiter, uh, that's someone who filters the research requests coming from within the company and decides, uh, helps prioritize them. Is that what that person does? 
No, so that person is, um, so we use Jira Service Desk, which yeah. probably isn't a surprise, yeah. to um, <laughs> provide a, a service desk for people in the organization who are doing user research. Okay. I call, you get researchers, and then you get what I call respectfully PWDRs, people who do research. Sure. They, might not, they might be product managers or designers or anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they are able to come in and submit a ticket to our recruitment team um, and say, hey, I need, they, they can, they have the briefing form, I need these kinds of people by these dates for this kind of project and, and we need to send them these kinds of thank you gifts and so on and so forth. So okay. it's, quite, it's quite a system. It's, it's an operation. It's operationalized, surprisingly enough. Yeah. It's a system. And, and, and um, Sarit and someone incoming who does, our, does the actual recruiting of participants, they will get that service desk ticket and be able to work with that researcher or PWDR in understanding what their needs are and then delivering them participants that suit their needs. Right. Um, so, you know, in the ultimate world, you have really good research planning mm. and then the request comes through and you're doing really good re- research participant recruitment and you're sending them excellent participants who they can do an excellent interview with and do amazing analysis of that great data right. and come up with really, like, phenomenal insights. Right. Like, ideal world, golden grail stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, in reality, uh, and again, not an Atlassian problem, it's, a, it's a, an industry issue with bigger mm. organizations, you get some, someone who's super busy, has far too much work on their plate, not a researcher, never really trained necessarily, and or could be phenomenal. I mean, this is like, it's a scale thing. Yeah. Um, and put, you know, doing some kind of quick plan around something could be just like thinking about it as a chat with people. Yeah. Um, no real research plan. Mm-hmm. So overloaded with recruitment, they get like recruit, participants sent to them. The research happens, but the interview skill wasn't perhaps like spot on. And then mm. the analysis possibly doesn't even necessarily get done. Mm. And then you have some kind of like learnings on the other side. Um, um, I'm not saying that this is the case with everything, uh, all kinds of research. I would never say that about the last thing we have excellent research happening. Right. Um, right. But you do have a scale. Um, and I think anyone who doesn't admit to that is lying. Um, right. Or, or please tell me how you've done it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's really interesting. So, Going going into a big big organization like Atlassian, where uh, can I ask how big the team is? The research team is it? Yeah, we have twenty four people now. It's grown significantly in the last year and a half since um, Lisa, who's just maverick and admirable in all ways, um, since she's been around. Right, and I've been I've been talking to people at companies like Auth Zero and Transferwise, which are still very successful startups, but it sounds mm-hmm. like they're still hiring their first UX researchers. So it's possible they're going to start running into these issues like a year or two from now. Yeah. And for, for the first hires there, the first brave ones, what is like, I mean, maybe it's hard to answer this question, but what is the, what are processes they can start laying in place, like very practical steps so that they're in a good position to have a good research operations, like a year or two from now when their teams yeah. are way bigger. I think it's an excellent question. And it's something yeah. I've been exploring in the last month or two. Anyone who watches me on Twitter would have seen me ranting about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Because uh, I can be quite purist. And on the one end, um, I'm like, you, you know, as a solo researcher, you don't have operations. And I still believe this. Yeah. You cannot operationalize yourself. I'm mm-hmm. really sorry to say, but operations, mm. just the nature of operations means it needs someone focused on it entirely. Mm. If you could operationalize yourself, you would have done it long before I came along or anything, anyone else came along. <laughs> You can right. be very organized. You can be much more organized and you can get things in place. But in order to stick operations in place, you need someone actually to run those operations, which means you need a per- folks person. So right. I could be on the one end of the scale going, 
you're just never going to have operations unless you put the skills to it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, in having the rant and the conversation, one of the ways I work out my place is to rant <laughs> <laughs> and uh, have a conversation about it so I can work out my thinking and the languaging and get the medium line. Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking at now is, yes, okay, you know, because of where we are and, and because it's such an emerging field, we are in a place where, where people are going to maybe be able to get one person in to do something that they're going to call operations, and it is possible. Yeah. The, the biggest problem that most people will have and the first thing they'll bump into, and for me it's the beginning of the journey in operations, is research participant recruitment. Mm-hmm. Number one, that's going to be the first thing. How do I get my participants? And it's a very, very time-intensive and expensive nut to crack if you're going to do it well. Right. Um, it, you can have one person just working on that and they're probably still not going to get all the work done that's needed. Right. So, so, um, so sorry, very quickly, uh, tools like user Zoom, user testing, mm-hmm. uh, do they suffice? Are they just, I don't know. Well, that's not really recruitment. Um, you know, okay. Okay, going in there and user Zoom are finding five participants for you. And, you know, we, we use user Zoom. Sure. Um, it's a tool. You can use it badly. You can use it well. My favorite analogy is if you've got a bowl of ice cream, a knife is not going to be any good for you. Right. It might even be injurious, <laughs> injurious for you. Sure. And so, you know, like user Zoom is not a bad tool. It just needs to be used in the right way for the right thing. What can happen, though, is people get stuck on, oh, we're just going to use this tool for everything. And yep. it's not used wisely. User Zoom will find you participants. That's not participant recruitment. Um, the same with a tool like Optimal Workshop or, opt, you know, a card sorting tools and stuff. Mm. They will find your participants that not, that's not participant recruitment. I'm talking about you're doing qual research because for me, user Zoom is about uh, you've done some really good qualitative research around your usability testing and now you want to test out one small thing or one particular thing ah. on, on a thing that you've been now developing this tool for a while and you want to do a quick test on it and that's a perfect tool for that. Got it. Um, Got it. So when we're doing participant recruitment from, for, from a qual point of view, because it is also quant recruitment, which mm-hmm. we use companies to do our quant recruiting mm-hmm. as well, um, you are saying, I want five participants uh, who use Jira are like, have been dormant for six months or longer than six months and have just started using the system again. We mm-hmm. want to talk to those people. Yeah. And so the servicing becomes using a variety of, you know, using your own panel and that panel needs a lot of work to make it, create it, maintain it. Yeah. That's a full-time job. Yeah. Um, you need um, possibly a lot of inroads and, and workflows and relationships with internal teams, marketing and your, right. people who own your customer database and your legal team. And there's a whole lot of work that goes into that. You need relationships with vendors and you need someone to actually manage those recruitment vendors in the briefing. So right. you can see how very quickly managing just participant recruitment for an organization mm-hmm. who needs to access all sorts of types of different people in different circumstances becomes more than a full-time job for one person. Right. And, and when you say panel, you mean like uh, internal panel where you can see people who are using your product and you can recruit them or like history of people you've recruited personally within the company? Yeah. So um, for the panel or community of people, um, there are customers who, who have specifically signed up and said, yes, I'd like to take part in research about your products. Right. The caveat is that you have a lot of fans uh, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got that slight bias in your recruitment. Sometimes you also have people who might want to be offloading their pains um, and therapy sessions around. So, but they can be very, very useful to have as long as you manage them uh, knowing that bias. Right. right. Um, but you also might be, might want to, you might want to be recruiting people at certain points in the journey through your product um, or your website or whatever it is, 
mm-hmm. um, people who have been dormant for six months. And that, that'll often be working with your database owners um, who, who have access to insights as to who's doing what within your products and when. Right. Interesting. So rec- recruiting is like one of the big research recruitment is one of the big pain points mm-hmm. for new people who are setting up research teams and what comes after uh, sure so I, I this is my i get excited now because this is one of my really um this is what i'm excited about at the moment so sure. things like a lot of people are um very excited about research libraries and i totally get that and i understand it and it's why people like one of the first things people want to talk about when you mention ops is libraries mm-hmm. but for me it's the last part of the conversation because um you want to make sure that there's no point in building a library. They're, they're very expensive to build and maintain. And if you think you're going to do it simply, you're mm-hmm. probably not going to win at it. I hate to be the bearer of bad news and be negative, but over five years, I've spent a lot of time talking to people about this and <laughs> put time into things, which is basically money at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And then it's like not fallen apart or not really worked out because it's a pain in the butt getting people to put data into a library right, and right. add it in a way that it's actually searchable and findable when you get to any kind of scale because mm. people do not want to add metadata and yeah. they're only interested in taking out. They're not interested in putting effort to put in. Right. And anyone who's had anything to do with any kind of library, never mind a research one, is probably nodding their head wildly right now. Right. And so when I've spoken to people who have even put a ton of money into a library and I've said, oh, that's very fancy and lovely and everything, but how's it actually going? Yeah. And they're like, well, it's a really hard time to get people to put stuff in. Yeah. So my theory around getting rid of this, it's a pretty strong theory. Um, it's verging on, on, on in practice soon. Is that at the beginning of the, the, the research ops life cycle, you have recruitment. The beautiful thing with our um, service desk and the briefing is that people across Atlassian are telling me, I'm recruiting these people for this reason at this time. And I'm the person doing the research to find out this stuff. Mm-hmm. I pretty much know everything I need to know to start out my library. Right. So I can move that data from my research service desk into a, a directory of sorts that says, this research happened. And I know it happened because I sent these people thank you gifts. I sent them an e-gift card, a swag box, a coupon for the, our Atlassian University, whatever it was. Right. To say thank you for that. I know this research happened. So capturing that I've, data right at the origin. Exactly. Yeah. And now what I've got is I've got the most interesting part of a library is who did what when and mm. what did they, what were they wanting to find out? This is at least the beginning. And, and it means that someone can look through and search out that. And, and my team, once I've got my digital librarian, can put in the metadata around that mm. without any effort from the researchers. So it's like agnostic of the person who did research right. as to whether this database exists, which is very rare for a library. Right. Now so, what I can do is my librarian can follow up and say, hey, we spent so much money because none of this happens for free. Recruitment and doing research is expensive. Mm-hmm. We spend so much money on doing this research. Kind of cough up your postcards for your journey. What did you learn? Mm. And what happened? It can't just vanish into the ether. What was your impact? Right. Um, because you, you keep doing research that has no impact. We're going to start questioning. We're spending so much money every quarter on you, and we're not getting anything for our money. And, and this is going to become an issue. Right. What's the return um, on investment? What is the return on investment? And yeah. that can be, where's your report? Research is interesting because, particularly with longitudinal, it might not have an impact now, but it might have an impact later. A whole other kettle of fish. Sure. But it means that I can then follow up, and once they give me their report that they've likely written and stuck on some page in, in Confluence or whatever wiki you're using, mm-hmm. I can then simply attach that record to the directory entry that I've got through my research recruitment desk. Right. So you can see where the beginning of the journey in research operations ties up really well 
mm-hmm. with the end of the journey, which is the library, which is the end of journey for operations in a sense. Mm. Now, in between that, there is, um, you're doing your research, okay, so now you need a place to do that. And if it's remote research, I need to at least make sure that um, booking rooms and things might just be something that happens on the researcher, which is, or the person doing research. But then they've done this, uh, they must have recorded some video and do they need a, a, a place to transcribe that video? Right. Do they need a place to store that video securely so that it, from a GDPR compliance point of view, we're lining up? Yeah. Which means I'm now working with legal, but also while they're doing the research, I've got consent forms and where do those consent, consent forms get stored legally yeah. and compliantly and so on and so forth. So in between that, there's a lot of work around asset management, around legal and compliance around privacy right. and that's the kind of stuff that research operations deals with as well now in some ways i'm lying to you that the the library is the last port of call because there is also okay so we've done this research i've now got some idea that you did this research you've done mm. these reports what was the impact yeah and so i've now got a, a team working in ops uh, just starting this week on engagement and how we um take the work that's been done by our core research team 24 i think it's 24 people now Mm-hmm. Really phenomenal research. I mean, absolutely incredible research coming out of the team. Yeah. And how do we get this broadcast across across the organization so that the impact is there? Right. Um, and so there's really the, all these pieces that are being looked at by operations. Yeah, and that's that's something I've heard other people struggle with as well, which is how do you get other people in the organization who actually deeply care about the subject matter, but they don't necessarily consume the research. Mm-hmm. Do you think format is a part of the problem? Do you think research reports are, uh, like, do you think atomic research and that whole thing helps with that respect? I am not a, um, I'm not going to say an advocate, but sure. Uh, atomic research for me, I, I never really, it's never really hooked with me. Um, mm. I'm re- like, I'm open-minded. I would love for someone to show me and convince me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not something that fits instantly into my world. And the research is be- the, the reason is because I even find with reports, uh, I did a couple of years of research on this and with about 50 researchers and probably even more by now. Yeah. And uh, what, what happens is um, reports are written and they might be in PDF format or like a slide deck or something more complicated and even worse when they're bigger. Yeah. Researchers might read them and everything they say to me ever is, I've read the report, but I don't really feel like I know the research. I don't know the researcher. I don't know if they were any good. I don't know the sample. I have no faith in this, and therefore I'm just going to start all over again so I can have trust in mm, what I'm doing. Right. The only time that they ever have faith in a report is when they've, they've found someone to have a conversation with because they're researchers after all. They right. want to feel what they're doing. It must be empathetic. It must be in their bones, so to speak. Yeah. So now you boil that down to you atomize it, mm-hmm. and there's even less for them to trust in and know where mm. it came from. And I have seen in, in many, organi- well, not many, but in several places um, where actually these kind of databases of, of user needs or atomized pieces become the bane of the researcher's life because mm. other people like PMs and designers, whoever else, go shopping in there to kind of back up or validate their, what they're <laughs> going to do. And so the researchers are like, we've got this awful database of stuff. I don't know where this stuff came from, what it's attached to, what the context was. Yeah. And it's just like kind of misleading people and disempowering us as researchers. Now, I do know that the, the Thomas Sharon has, um, um, oh, what's sure. it called now? It suddenly jumped my mind. Polaris. Polaris, thank you. Sure. Um, and what I did like about that from what I've seen of it is that there's a lot of context, like the raw data is is there to contextualize the atoms. And I think yeah. that's really important. So um, I think that's a different, that's a different representation. And, and I think it's so important that those, that, that, con- that real life raw data context is there. Right. 
and that, and that's really interesting what you say that um, even for researchers to actually convince them of the validity of the research they see, there has to be that conversation with the person. Mm-hmm. So I bet that's like, is that even more so true for non-researchers within the company? I, th- I it's it's a very good question. I haven't actually done this research with non-researchers, with sure. with, with people who do research. Yeah. Um, I would imagine it's even more, but I'm like really a, that's a massive assumption. Right. Um, what I would say is that you know just looking at libraries again, I think for me the focus is needs to be tweaked. When people are talking about libraries, they literally can think about like we need all this knowledge, these books, and these reports to be stacked up in a way that you can find them. Mm. And I think that the more much more interesting way of looking at it, and it can be argued it's a subtle shift, but an important one in my mind is that it's a directory of research. So, yeah, uh, a story. Um, sure. I, my gr- uh, grandfather was a very, very good artist during the war era in the 1940s in the UK, and he was exhibited in the Royal Academy of Art. And mm-hmm. my father and I went there um, when I was living in London um, up until seven months ago, I guess. And we dropped into the Royal Academy to go and find out, could we find which of his artworks were exhibited at the Royal Academy in the 1940s? Mm. So we walk into this very beautiful um, library space, archive space, and there's uh, someone at the desk, and I ask, we ask her, could you find this information for us? And she sure. pulls out a couple of books and she selects one of them and she says, here it is. And she had pulled it out within five minutes. And for us, it was literally a few lines cataloging that um, Basil Talsey had exhibited these pieces of work at this time. And right. that gave us the information we needed to be kind of satisfied and also heartwarmed. Mm. And it's really this that, that, that I look at with research is a catalog of who went where, when, and what did they, perhaps what did they learn? Right. But the most important thing is the bus terminal. Who went where when? So that I can contact them or someone who was involved and speak to them. Of course, you get attrition and people move on. But mm-hmm. it's that knowledge of this thing happened. And that's where you go back and you look at this can be made without a, a researcher or a PWDR lifting a finger mm-hmm. because you've got that um, to an extent in your recruitment desk. Right. Um, at least once you're covering at least all of the recruitment going on. At the moment, we're not doing all of it because we can't. But um We've right. got a lot of it coming through, and we, we can start to build up database from that point. Interesting. So uh, that means going back to, again, the origin of the research, and that's where the cataloging should start. That's where mm-hmm. you start to get clarity. Yeah, exactly. And then later on, you add in the reports. It's, it's much easier then to go in and say to the person who did the research, hey, um, where's the link in the wiki? Where's your video? Where's your stuff? And then you add it on. You have someone adding that data in and, and understanding. Now, what's beautiful about this is the next step on that is the impact. And you now have somebody who is working with your research team, is working in the library. Mm. You also have a recruitment team who's seeing all the research that's coming in and what's going on. Mm. And you have these few people who have got a, a superpower. They're your very unique view, is mm-hmm. knowing exactly what research is going on across the organization and who is crossing over. Right. And then people looking at those results are... are also being able to see all the connections between all the lots of different researches going on in the silos, because silos will always be there. I, I don't yeah. have a fantasy world where they're not going to be there. Yeah. But having people above those silos enables them to be able to then be producing reports that are saying, we're learning this from support. We're learning this from our sales team. We're learning this from our research team doing longitudinal, like big picture stuff or people in the products doing sort of smaller picture stuff. Yeah. And they can put those stories together and now you get much greater impact from your research efforts across the organization. Right. Um, and that is hooked into the library, which was hooked into the, into the research recruitment. So going right. back to what I said earlier about being a consultant and coming in and building one piece of it, you can see why mm. I'm saying like 
great that you start with one piece. Why I'm saying that as one researcher, you can't have, you can't have research ops as a researcher trying to be more organized. Right. Because this is an operation. Mm. This, is, this is an operation from several small businesses that are feeding into one another and yeah. giving each other information that empowers the next part of the string. Right. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And um, it's interesting to see even huge companies struggling with this at the moment, and especially the silos problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like you said, it's, it's interesting to acknowledge that that's not going to go away and design around it, design to accommodate that. Yeah. Instead of wishing that silos will just go away at one <laughs> exactly. point. Exactly. Yeah. And shouting about it and asking everyone to stop silos. I think, you know, it's just the nature of work and the nature of people is that we're going to thrive together. Right. Um, and as far as the organization, so when we spoke about atomic research, we spoke about people in the company self-consuming research and in how some cases that cannot be the best outcome. Is there a case in which that um, that works? Uh, what do you mean by self-consuming? Um, people just when they're looking for knowledge on a particular subject or a project or a product, they dig it up themselves Mm -hmm. and they try to come to their own conclusions or do you think it should always be assisted by a researcher? Mm, That's a very good question. Um, I don't know the answer to that yet. Um, It's probably something I'd be able to answer in about a year's time when I've actually put all these, the full chain together. At the moment, I'm in the chain where I've got the engagement team Mm -hmm. um, and I've got the recruitment team and there are, elements of the library directory coming together. Sure. Um, I imagine that conversation is always going to be a productive part of the, of the research process, whether it's you doing, um, oh, it's like five people have done actually research on this topic in the last six months. Well, that's interesting. Mm. Um, let me have conversations with them. I, I would suspect that's always going to be a handy part. Whether people will do that or not is, is um, is another thing. I, you know, looking at Atlassian, it's a very open, integrated, communal, amazing company. Um, I suspect that would be a part of it, but who knows? Right. That's interesting. And um, one of one of the tools that sort of come up on my radar is Dovetail, which is mm-hmm. coming from two ex Atlassian yeah. uh, engineers. Yeah. Any any opinions on that tool? Any? I don't know if you're allowed to. Yeah, no, um, I, I don't know a lot about Dovetail. I know Update Dovetail. I've looked at it over the years. Um, I probably wouldn't want to comment. Um, sure. It's not a tool that we're using right now, and I haven't spent a lot of time using it myself. Um, I know that people have found value in it. Uh, we are looking at using Atlassian tools um, to manage our information, and I, and I think that we can successfully use Atlassian tools for the same thing. All right, interesting. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think... Let me just look at my questions once more. Um, I'm, I'm just looking at a mural, internal communications, asset management, knowledge management. Yeah, I think that's that's most of what I wanted to ask about. Is there is there anything uh, you'd like to say to people listening? Or Yeah. Yeah, I think there's one interesting thing that's coming out for me. And again, it becomes, it again goes back to the theme in my life, um, which is really Aside from getting to work with Lisa Raycold again and um, moving to this incredible city called Sydney mm-hmm. and getting some sunshine again finally, um, I was also very interested in, in being able to build out the full ecosystem, which I couldn't do as a consultant. Right. Um, and what's been interesting is, is I've taken over managing all the finances, finances around research because a lot of the money spent is really on the operational stuff, right? It's on recruitment, the thank you gifts, the, right. the next thing that needs money spent on it. Um, so... It's very interesting because uh, you start to see just how much the research is costing over time. Right. And uh, it's, it's, it's a really, um, it's, it's a, 
a wonderful thing for uh, CEOs and, and people to be saying, we need to spend more time with our customers and get to know them and all these kinds of things. But when, when you centralize the costs, yeah. um, which are not new costs, they, they're not like you're making these costs. You know, it's not things that you've just become more expensive. Uh, you centralize them so you now know what it's costing. Yeah. And it starts to stack up and it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars um, over a quarter. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting over time to see in organizations who do centralize research um, and centralize the costing and the processes around research, um, how that shifts the way that um, the CEOs or whoever that we've been trying to sell research into for years and, and thanks mm. to the work of many other people, not me, mm -hmm. that's now happened and is happening more and more. But when they start to see the costing around it, whether there's any questioning around, oh, okay, wow, it's quite pricey to spend a lot of time with customers. How about mm -hmm. we spend really good quality time with customers and make sure that really skilled people are spending time with customers? Right. Um, so I'm curious about how that conversation progresses over the next um, couple of years, not just in my space, but in, in other people who are putting together these kinds of um, functions. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. So like, and that aligns with the business incentives of the company better as well, mm -hmm. when you're fully yeah. aware of this is how much we're spending uh, on this. Yeah. Right. Fascinating. Kate, thanks so much. That was, uh, was really fun chatting with you. Yeah, likewise. Really great to chat with you. And yeah. um, good, luck, good luck for your design yatra with my friend Nishita in, uh, uh, later this year. That so should be a looking blast. Forward. I'm hoping that uh, you'll invite us back on to chat about what we learned. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, I would love to. I'd love to. Um, and do, do, do drop us a line if you ever visit Singapore. We're based here. Brilliant. Uh, oh, great. All right. Um, okay. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Bebas. Thanks so much. Bye. Have a bye good bye. day.